Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Columbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Very glad you're with us for the Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We wish we had a good martini for you. But we don't. Uh, these could all be uh, chalked up as bad martinis, but uh, they certainly have some crazy element to them as well. Jim, let's jump right into the first one. And, you know, people love bureaucratic speak if they're the one speaking it and they're a bureaucrat. It drives the rest of us nuts because even when you ask simple questions, you get a really long answer that never answers the question sometimes. And some questions should be super, super easy. Like, should prices be lower? Yes, is the correct answer, but sometimes Biden administration officials can't even handle that. This is Interior Secretary Deb Haaland under questioning from Wyoming Republican Senator John Barrasso, and the question is about gas prices. Madam Secretary, honest question, do you believe that gas prices are too high? Senator, I completely understand the crunch that so many Americans are under right now. I, um, I mean, I'm thinking back. I've been driving since I was about 18, so it's. I know that we've had other. You know, I remember back when there were lines out the gas stations and that kind of thing. Um, I think that there that Americans are still recovering from this terrible pandemic, and there are a lot of other world. Um, events that are making things difficult for all of us. So, so it sounds you're unwilling to say that gas prices are too high. Jim, who cares what she did when she was 18 years old? I mean, this is basically an administration, I think, that knows that, as Barack Obama said many years ago now, prices have to necessarily skyrocket to get their agenda in place. And this is, uh, you know, more of a feature than a bug, these these high energy prices. And as you tweeted out uh, just a little while ago, they're going to get a lot worse here as the summer rolls on. Greg, actually, I might say that I don't know if that's bureaucraties so much because it's not a lot of, you know, fancy technical jargon in there. <laughs> it is the mental tap dancing of a cabinet official who wants to sound sympathetic on what is, you know, combined with inflation, the single biggest issue on Americans' minds. And obviously, you know, high gas prices are a high driver of the inflation in, in the American economy. But at the same time, she doesn't want to say the administration is fouling up and not and failing to respond to this crisis. So she's walking that tightrope. And remember the 70s? Remember gas lines? Oh, man, that was so bad. And weren't we all wearing bell bottoms then? And wasn't and the disco was big? To, you know, this, this long meandering answer. And yes, listeners, I can hear you saying, Jim, you're in no position to give anybody else, else grief about meandering answers. Um, but I think what we see here is an administration that is trying to sound sympathetic. And intermittently, you'll see things like the, the Elizabeth Warren claim of greedflation, right? The idea that uh, oil companies are just decided to get just got greedy all of a sudden, you know, uh, and or they'll blame it on Putin or things like that. Earlier this week, we talked about oil refineries. And if you're because, you know, twice this year, Biden, the Biden administration has released oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. It is now at the lowest level uh, of oil left in the Strategic Reserve since 1987, uh, which ideally you'd like to have a nice, healthy you know, uh, one there. Um, even if you, you know, are putting more oil into the market, we did see a little bit of expansion in capital expenditures from oil, oil producers. 
but none of that stuff does you any good if you don't have refined oil that you can send on to the gas stations. And as mentioned earlier in this week, we had five in the go offline in 2020. Another one had an uh, explosion and a fire that took it offline in 2019. And oh, by the way, there's one more fairly big one that's supposed to go down uh, at the end of 2023. There is some good news. There is a proposal for one in North Dakota that should come online in 2023, but that one will be smaller than the one in Texas that's going offline by 2023. So the numbers are in fact moving in the wrong direction, not the right direction. Um, you mentioned the idea that the, the word that's going to get worse. This came from JP Morgan, the commodities analyst, Natasha Kaneva. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Uh, as in, you can never afford gas at this rate, it seems. <laughs> um, basically, they said, looking at the uh, expectations of strong driving demand, you know, you know, Memorial Day, you start driving on summer vacations and last until Labor Day, you know, people going to the beach, stuff like that. Um, you're going to see the other projection is by August, we're looking at the national average of $6.20 a gallon. I'll give you a moment to clutch your heart as you contemplate your summer vacation this year. Um, and also I would note that you'd be like, oh my God, $6 a gallon. Our California listeners are saying, what are you talking about? I'm already paying $6 a gallon. <laughs> right. The average in that state is 606. And again, that's regular, not premium. So if you know, California is always a buck, buck 50 higher than the national average, by August, California could be looking at $7 a gallon, 750 a gallon national uh, the average in the state if you happen to god help you if you live in an expensive part of the state like san francisco or la or something like that you'll probably be paying something like eight dollars a gallon greg i don't know about you when i hear that i'm usually thinking of like quasi-apocalyptic scenarios in in you know dystopian sci-fi books of uh uh you know society starting to collapse because of uh, energy crises and stuff like that. I mean, I don't think it would lead to a societal collapse, but I think, you know, I think most people are looking at this saying, oh my God, you know, four bucks. First of all, in every state, it's now $4 a gallon minimum. A whole bunch of us are paying $5. And if you're in one of the higher states, uh, particularly if you have a higher state uh, gas taxes, you're looking at $6 a gallon. Remember, uh, these are all prices for regular gasoline. Diesel is, you know, much has been more expensive lately. And diesel is what is used to ship everything to the stores that you buy. Everything you buy gets to the stores through diesel fuel. This is all really, really bad. And right now, the you know, is the Department of the Secretary of the Interior the, the point person for the administration on energy prices? No, Jennifer Granholm should be getting more grief about this, maybe uh, uh, Pete Buttigieg. But this is an administration that doesn't want to really get into this and prefers to say, ah, I, we feel the pain. Remember the 70s? <laughs> No, it's utterly absurd. Uh, Mrs. Columbus and I were out in San Diego at the end of March, and it was six thirty-nine for the cheap stuff uh, at that point. But uh, you know that could have been a, one of the more expensive parts of the state. But uh, you know, you said six twenty a gallon. Just if you have a fifteen-gallon tank, six bucks a gallon—that's ninety bucks to fill up. And I'm not going to do the math on the twenty cents, but uh, that's more. Uh, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be more. Uh, but, you know, you, you could have, uh, yes, it's too high and we're working on it or something. These people just aren't up to the, all these crises. We saw the national security team with Afghanistan. We're watching Granholm, Buttigieg, now Holland. Um, I mean, where are the experts here? The real experts, not the ones they tell us are experts. Mallorca stinks. Who's on the job for this administration that you're like, if something hits the fan here, I think that person is going to be on top of it. Greg, forgive me if I've mentioned this before. I know I mentioned this on editors lately. So in the first year of administration, you know, new president comes to town, 
whole bunch of energy and excitement, and usually they get the 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 the, the, the A list, so to speak, for their cabinet. Um, the very best folks, because when you're a new president, almost everybody in the country is willing to work for you, eager to work for you. You're you're deluged with resumes. Respected, smart, accomplished people are willing to step away from lucrative private sector careers and step in and be a cabinet secretary for a certain couple of years. Um, then usually, you know, a presidency hits troubles in the midterms. After two years, you start to see a little bit of churn in the uh, in the cabinet and staff around the president. And maybe you end up with the B team, the second best candidate for all of those jobs. Good day, the president gets reelected, starts a new term. And by this point, you're down to the C team. You know, you've seen people about every two years, people get exhausted. They want to spend time with their families. They begin to realize that, God, being secretary of labor isn't the most exciting thing in the world. <laughs> they have to pay for their kids' college tuitions. The lure of corporate consulting comes along or a teaching gig in the Ivy Leagues, or they want to write a book or something like that. And then by the last two years of a second term of a presidency, that's when you've got the D team. That's when you've got the leftovers. That's when you've got the loyal soldiers who put in their time and deserve some sort of reward and or the acting secretaries, acting commissioners, stuff like that. So generally by the last years seven and eight of a presidency, that's when you've got kind of the dregs. Greg, the best way to look at this is that Biden's A team is Obama's E team. <laughs> These were the folks who were probably due to get a promotion in the Obama administration, but Hillary didn't get elected. So they've been hanging around with Biden for a while. And these are the best of who's left. And you know what, Greg, this is you look at these results. We're getting what we're paying for, so to speak. That is truly depressing. I wasn't a big fan of Obama's A team or his B or his C or his D. And if this is the E team. John Kerry, actually, John Kerry was part of the C team. <laughs> Hillary was the A team. Gosh. Yeah, I don't want their A team or any team. But uh, this is pathetic performance on so many different issues. But uh, I'll tell you what's not pathetic. The amazing deal you can get from MyPillow with their BOGO extravaganza. Buy one, get one. It really should be BOGOF because buy one, get one free. I mean, if you buy one, you should get one. But if you get two, that's a really good deal. MyPillow bed sheets, you can get two sets for as low as $59.98. Elegance MyPillows, as low as $49.98. The six-piece towel set, $79.98. And the roll-and-go anywhere MyPillows, starting at two for $29.98. Indeed, Greg. As I think about that, BOGO simply means buy one, get one, which is how it works normally, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Well, you should buy one, get one free on the Roll and Go Anywhere My Pillow. You can use it on your couch or your recliner. Even if you're in your car, you want to catch a quick nap in there and you're sitting in traffic, perhaps. The, uh, your, these pillows are versatile enough to take it with you on vacation or anywhere you want to go. The pillows are available in multiple colors and patterns. They're machine washable and dryable, and they come with a 10-year warranty and a 60-day money-back guarantee. It's a buy one, get one free extravaganza at MyPillow.com slash martini. The bed sheets and MyPillows are just the tip of the iceberg. Find the full list of BOGO offers by visiting MyPillow.com slash martini or call 800-874-0104. Stock up with buy one, get one free savings today and get Mike's book free with any purchase. MyPillow.com slash martini or call 800-874-0104. MyPillow.com slash martini. All right, Jim, one of the fun things we do here at the Three Martini Lunch every year at the end of the year is our year-end awards. And one of the ones that constantly keeps coming back to bite me are my terrible predictions for who's fading into oblivion. Now, I admitted last December that this was more wishful uh, than certain and uh, 
Turns out I was probably right about that aspect of it because he's not going away. Bill de Blasio stopped being mayor of New York City, mercifully, at the stroke of midnight on New Year's Eve. Uh, But he wants back in now, and now he wants to be our neighbor, Jim. Uh, According to Axios, de Blasio will run to represent New York's 10th congressional district, which includes parts of Manhattan and Brooklyn. After the New York State Court of Appeals rejected a map drawn by Democrats in the state legislature aimed at maximizing the number of Democratic House seats, uh, a court-appointed mapmaker drew new preliminary maps that were released on Monday. The maps made significant changes to districts in the name of competitiveness and compactness, including breaking up Jerry Nadler's district, which spans the west side of Manhattan and snakes into Brooklyn. In the new map, Nadler would be placed in a contest against fellow Democrat Carolyn Maloney, leaving a lower Manhattan, Brooklyn seat with no incumbent and a massive bench of Democrats waiting in the wings. So, Jim, I don't know if he's going to get the nomination. I think the rats in New York City are more popular than him, so I think actually getting elected could be tough. Of course, if he wins the primary, he's probably going to sail into it. But why won't Bill de Blasio just go away? Greg, Longtime listeners to this podcast, let's just say insert groundhog joke here. (laughs) Um, Let's get it out of the way. So I think, you know, I I don't, this is a heavily Democratic district. I don't know how good his odds are in the primary. Clearly, he's got to have something, you know, close to 100% name ID. But I I think one of the things that's kind of striking about this is um, you recently saw, let's just say, a certain former Republican campaign consultant go on a tirade on Twitter and, you know, a, a, you know, something like tweeting at least once an hour, every hour for like, you know, 24, 48, 72 hours. And everyone kept saying, like, doesn't he have a friend to tell him this is a terrible idea? You should stop, <laughs> put down the phone, put step away from the computer. I'm very curious about who Bill de Blasio's friends are and why they can't talk him out of this and or to say, Bill, I love you, but you really were not that good at this whole governing thing. Now you can take your measuring stick. You could say the the rate of crime in New York City. Uh, You could say the way he kept insisting to people it was perfectly safe to use public transportation and they should go about their lives up until about February, mid, early March 2020 in COVID-19. Or I I think just the, the, as much as I love the groundhog jokes, I think the definitive image of Bill de Blasio's time as mayor of New York City was New Year's Eve 2020 heading into 2021, in which the traditional Times Square celebration was canceled and effectively banned. The police sealed off Times Square. You were not allowed to get there because the the city had deemed it too dangerous. But he and his wife were dancing together as the ball came down and the new year was rung in. And it just, you know, even if even people who were on the left side of the spectrum and who were Democrats looked at that image and it looked as if the royal family of New York City had effectively walled off this, this, so that they could celebrate while no one else could. It was a real, these were bad years for New York City. He didn't control the pandemic, although as I noted, he uh, certainly mismanaged it early on. I'll give him a smidgen of credit for trying to open up the schools when there were forces opposed to that, including teachers unions. But by and large, it's not just that he was liberal, he was also very incompetent. Um, he just, I don't think he can point to results and say this was great. Oh, by the way, in the middle of it all, he chose to run for president and achieve the status of an asterisk. So <laughs> the question is, why you know, Why is he convinced that the people are yearning for him to remain in government? Um, and isn't there someone to say, Bill, it's time to find something else to do with your life. This is just not, um, you are not popular. You're not good at this. You didn't do a good job as mayor. 
and it's time to let other people try to get, take a shot at this. Or maybe there's just, you know, some groundhogs out there who have it coming. <laughs> well, he's really rich, so I guess they just keep wanting him to pay for dinner and stuff, so maybe they won't but, tell him that, that it's just not a good idea. I assume he's so unpopular he won't get the nomination, but it really depends who gets in this campaign. And since, you know, this has just been redrawn and it's about to become official, it's going to be a pretty quick scramble to get in there. And so somebody who's pretty well bankrolled might have an advantage. But uh, not looking forward to Bill de Blasio in Washington, so let's hope that doesn't happen, even though we probably won't be super happy with whoever comes out of that district. All right, let's move on to our crazy martini now. And Jim, let's talk about the pandemic <laughs> and inflation again. But uh, uh, they're kind of intertwining here in our crazy martini. Uh, notice this in the free beacon, but the Wall Street Journal had it first. Because, of course, you know, one of the big reasons for our inflation, not the only reason, but some of it, is uh, nearly $2 trillion in the COVID relief spending that uh, happened pretty early on in the Biden administration. So we're dealing with the fact of all that money being jacked into uh, the economy. And now we're finding out that uh, a lot of that money isn't even being spent because schools don't know what to do with it. Uh, here's how the Free Beacon puts it. American schools have spent just 7% of the $122 billion in federal aid allocated to them under the American Rescue Plan. Districts across the country are struggling, quote-unquote, to spend the money earmarked as part of the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan. Uh, the L.A. Unified School District has yet to spend a penny of its more than $2.5 billion of relief funds, according to the journal. And New York City public schools were, quote, behind target on spending coronavirus relief funds. Schools can use relief payments to fund salaries and mental health services or purchase ventilators and personal protective equipment, which teachers unions deemed a prerequisite for reopening during the pandemic. The American Rescue Plan earmarked 20 percent of school aid for programs to combat learning loss caused by remote learning. But schools are hesitant to hire more teachers whose salaries they would have to cover when the funding expires. And supply chain issues have made it hard to obtain ventilation systems and other equipment. They do talk about Fairfax County Public Schools, where your kids go, um, and uh, some of the money they've spent there on teacher salary increases and online tutoring programs and stuff. So some of it's uh, being spent. So, uh, Jim... Turns out a lot of the money that got forced on us in this bill and is contributing to inflation wasn't necessary at all. Yeah, and I think every Republican running for House and Senate this year should be beating the drum on this. Every opportunity between now and Election Day, emphasizing that, you know, while there are certain factors that are beyond our control, supply chain issues, Shanghai getting shut down, Russia invading Ukraine, a portion of the inflation that we are suffering right now was a self-inflicted wound. We made this choice. We chose this path. And the other thing I think you can point out is that if you look at the um, uh, the emergency loans, the the you know the PPP loans and stuff like that that they did early on in the pandemic, people said you can do it fast or you can do it well. And if we throw this out and it open up to just to anybody who applies, we're going to end up. Uh, with a whole bunch of money that ends up getting wasted and going to people who didn't really need it, didn't really deserve it. And there were certain folks at the time, including myself, you know what, this is really a terrible crisis. We've never had a situation where people can't leave their homes. We never had a situation where we've told people you're not allowed to go to work. We never had a situation where, you know, and that, you know, sometimes a crisis is severe enough that you have to say, just get the money out the door. We'll try to recoup the losses later for fraud. You know, okay, I thought people now point out, the uh, amount of fraud involved in that loans probably uh, is larger than any other federal program ever. Um, so we did indeed pay for it. They're trying to prosecute people. Apparently, just uh, apparently they raided the house of some minor celebrity in L.A. 
recently. So, you know, we kind of knew that going in, but you could make the argument that the circumstances in May and early spring uh, 2020 were so bad, we had to do this even though we knew some of the money was going to be wasted. The American Rescue Plan, you know, early 2021, vaccines were rolling out. Life was starting to get back to normal. People were starting to get together in uh, larger groups. People had, you know, we had a much better sense of the fatality rate of this. We all had a much better sense of who was vulnerable and who was not. Everybody had the option to get, uh, you got the options of wearing masks is required in a whole bunch of places. So the justification for that was much tougher. And I think that, oh, by the way, I think it was a couple of months earlier, they had done another round of emergency COVID relief uh, in like late 2020 as well. So like you add all of this up, the economy in 2021 was on a fairly normal, you know, recovery rate. There were bumps in the road. There were going to be supply chain issues. It was, you know, it's you're trying to recover from something that's never quite happened before. But then in March, the government said, "Here's another giant slew of money," and we were not producing goods at the same rate as they were, you know, effectively running the printing press. Whether they they don't do it that way anymore, they just press a button, the money gets transferred to banks, and that's where the money went into the economy. And lo and behold, too much money, not enough goods, prices go up, inflation occurs. That's where we ended up. With this. So uh, a really good example of this, I think it is worthwhile, as my colleague Charlie Cook has said, see how much of that money is recoverable. See if you can go to this, this school just and say, you know what, I know we allocated to it, you haven't used it, we're taking the money back. I imagine this is a formula for a long protracted legal fight, but in the end, if that money, like if we had spent all that money and it actually had done for good, done good things with it, people would feel better about it. But the fact they haven't spent the money yet is a clear example, they didn't actually need it. And this is a giant waste of money and it's tanking the economy as well. Yeah, I mean, hey, happy Friday, everybody. <laughs> 122 billion dollars out of 1.9 trillion is a pretty small percentage. Man, there's way too much math today on the three martini lunch. But uh, you know, we've talked about them as a super villain in this story before. The teachers unions—they forced all this, they made this, and uh, got all this into the bill. And it turns out uh, they either didn't need it or didn't know what to do with it. So. Jim, the teachers' unions just covering themselves in glory day after day after day. Do we dare say, way to go, teachers' unions, way to go? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Make that a big issue. Actually, that, that's even worse. There are things to like about Nevada. <laughs> <laughs> no, they are a supervillain at this point, Weingarten and the whole lot of them. But uh, anyway, on that glorious note, Jim, have a good weekend, and we'll uh, see you on Monday. See you Monday, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. Tell a friend about us as well. Uh, thank you so much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. We love those, and they are a big help to us. Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great weekend, and please join us again on Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch. This week on the Federalist Radio Hour. The left would, of course, counter and say, well, listen, the, the sort of political establishment swindled everyone into paying these really high rates. So, in fact, it's just to sort of forgive this illegitimate uh, debt to begin with. But, you know, you're sort of stripping people of their own agency and decision making powers um, in, in order to make that argument. I'm Emily Jashinsky of The Federalist. Subscribe to The Federalist on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.